welcome to the community-supported Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Daily Show, Countdown with Keith Olbermann, Randy Rhodes, Al Franken, Lachaud, Sam Cedar, and a speech by Senator Jim Webb. Tomorrow night is the main event of this week, the President's annual State of the Union address. I'm so excited. We'll have full coverage for you on Wednesday. But first, an exclusive preview of the big event. matches up two bitter rivals, the President of the United States and words. Right now, as we speak, words hold a three to two advantage. But if the President can take this one, his final State of the Union will be a rubber match. Or as he might say, it's a, it's a match. It's a, don't, it's a match with rubber. Don't, don't wear your rubbers in a match. President described the state of our union. Well, over the past six tumultuous years, he has always managed to find just the right word to encapsulate the complexities of our times. The state of our union has never been stronger. Our union is strong. Confident and strong. Confident and strong. And together we will make it stronger. Strongly. We will use strength to be strong in our strongness. For strong aliciousness is strong-tastic. Well, that's what you get for relying exclusively on Roger's monosaurus. So, clearly our union is strong! Of course, there is one other the union the president consistently talks about, uh, how's that one trending? The people of Iraq are free. Sounds good. The car bombers and assassins are not only fighting coalition forces, they are trying to destroy the hopes of Iraqis. Less good? How about 12 months ago? As we make progress on the ground and Iraqi forces increasingly take the lead, we should be able to further decrease our troop levels. Yes, I think this will be our year. president assesses the state of this union, it is appropriate to gauge that assessment in light of his past addresses. And so in our fourth story tonight, a partial survey of statements in previous State of the Union speeches that turned out not to be, or we learn later, never were true. 
Some claims need no more than simple visual reminders to eliminate whether what we were told was or would be true. Across oceans and continents, on mountaintops and in caves, you will not escape the justice of this nation. The United States of America will not permit the world's most dangerous regimes to threaten us with the world's most destructive weapons. And this site itself a lie of a kind, Ahmed Chalabi, sold to us as an Iraqi freedom fighter, when in fact the administration had put a suspected Iranian agent sitting right behind the First Lady of the United States. But it is the sales job before the war that we remember most vividly. The British government has learned that Saddam Hussein recently sought significant quantities of uranium from Africa. He attempted to purchase high-strength aluminum tubes suitable for nuclear weapons production. Several mobile biological weapons labs aids and protects terrorists, including members of al-Qaeda. At the time, only a handful of skeptics and the administration itself had guessed the truth. No uranium, no aluminum tubes, no mobile labs, no al-Qaeda. Still, we were assured war with Iraq would not be fought on the cheap. We will fight with the full force and might of the United States military. In fact, the president sent in fewer than half of the troops recommended by the Army's chief of staff, General Eric Shinseki, and then he was ousted. Still, we were assured those troops would be taken care of. I thank the Congress for providing our service men and women with the resources they have needed. Service men and women have survived terrible injuries. And this grateful nation will do everything we can to help them recover. In fact, we went to war with the Army and the equipment we already had. And today, advocates for research on traumatic brain injury and other wounds suffered by troops with no body armor, unarmored vehicles, and no anti-RPG systems find themselves fighting funding cuts. At least, though, we were assured the troops would answer only to American commanders. America will never seek a permission slip to defend the security of our country. In fact, then as now, Mr. Bush let Iraqi leaders decide U.S. troops could not go after Muqtada al-Sadr, whose power has only grown in the interim. And even after the woeful inadequacy of his war plan became clear, the president assured us year after year that his course, the only course, was the right course and a winning course. The Iraqis are assuming more responsibility. Ordinary Iraqis are anxious to shoulder all the security burdens. America and its coalition partners will increasingly be in a supporting role. We remain on the offensive with a clear plan for victory. The insurgency will be marginalized. We are in this fight to win, and we are winning. In that last speech, too, we find one claim which the events of just two weeks ago have now rendered painfully tragic. We should be able to further decrease our troop levels. But those decisions will be made by our military commanders, not by politicians in Washington, D.C. And how to justify his reversal of a vow made just last year? As before, so today. Fear. The only difference, what we were told to fear. Already, the K report identified dozens of weapons of mass destruction related program activities. Our men and women in uniform are fighting terrorists in Iraq, so we do not have to face them here at home. A sudden withdrawal of our forces from Iraq would abandon our Iraqi allies to death in prison, would put men like bin Laden and Zarqawi in charge of a strategic country. 
But there were no WMDs. The enemy in Iraq is primarily not al-Qaeda, and as the administration's own agencies report time and time again, al-Qaeda does not need a victory in the Iraq war. The Iraq war itself is a victory for them, draining resources from the real fight in Afghanistan and elsewhere, eroding global unity, creating a new generation of terrorists around the world, committed to the singular goal of decimating the State of the Union. Partisan differences to pass the No Child Left Behind Act, preserving local control, raising standards, and holding schools accountable for results. And because we acted, students are performing better in reading and math. Minority students are closing the achievement gap. That would be false. That would be false. I, he can't, you know, it's funny because he had to give a speech about domestic prowess and he doesn't have anything to say. Uh, you know, I mean, I remember the, the Clinton speech. We have created 18 million new jobs and, 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 and new businesses are just blossoming and the housing market is booming and there are like no people on unemployment whatsoever. And, uh, you know, the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting richer and I'm just going to go get me a Hummer. You know, I mean, that was the, that was the Clinton administration. This one, he can't talk about his major policy initiative, which is Iraq. So he had to give a speech about domestic prowess, which he doesn't have because he's bankrupted this country. He has not uh, done anything for the troops. He can't brag about, you know, uh, the best equipped, most lean and mean fighting force. Or, you know, he can't, he, he can't talk about uh, more cops on the street. Remember, Bill Clinton, we have just finished putting 100,000 new cops on the street and violent crime in this country is down. The war on drugs is going great. We've interdicted this amount over here on this border, and there's no more heroin coming in. And there's such a dearth of foreign drugs in this country that people are making meth now. Yes, all the drugs are homegrown like stills. You know, can't do it. He doesn't have anything to say about domestic prowess. So he told you that no child left behind has helped students to perform better at reading and math, and minority students are closing the achievement gap. What Bush lied about is that states made stronger annual gains in reading and math during the decade before him, meaning Bill Clinton's presidency. He lied. The states are screaming because No Child Left Behind is unfunded and they're being punished and they're canceling classes in things like good government, American history, science, too sciencey. He wants to go to Mars? Well, we could set our goals smaller. You know, we could go to Uranus. I made it funny. You know what I mean? 
So the research on No Child Left Behind shows that at the, the average annual gains in reading and math were much stronger during the decade before No Child Left Behind. And researchers have found, and a half a dozen recent studies have shown little progress in narrowing the score gap between minority and white students. So he just stood there lying, thinking they're not briefed up on, on domestic stick because they're all worried about this war. It's all they talk about. War, 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 war. I wonder where they got the idea about war. It's all they talk about. Situation that's rough, then I start to panic. It's not enough. It's just a habit of curiosity. It was, was sickened by so much of this. <laughs> uh, let's talk about uh, the, the, he, he said. Let's talk about the economy. Uh, play the uh, economy. A future of hope and opportunity begins with a growing economy, and that is what we have. We're now in the 41st month of uninterrupted job growth, a recovery that has created 7.2 million new jobs so far. Okay, I think that got an applause. But uh, so far, the number of new net jobs during his administration, 3.7 million jobs, compared to 22 million during the Bush administration. Clinton administration. Uh, Clinton, what did I say? Bush. Well, Clinton administration. Okay. Um, okay, let's, let's play unemployment. Unemployment is low. Inflation is low. Wages are rising. This economy is on the move, and our job is to keep it that way, not with more government, but with more enterprise. Okay. Let's, let's look at how he's done. On, on median household income, that's the average income if, right in the middle, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, in 2000, this is, you know, uh, in constant dollars, $47,599. Uh, in uh, 2005, $46,326. The median income has gone down over $1,000. Wow, the economy is on the move. <laughs> Didn't say which way. Salary of a full-time minimum wage employee uh, without vacation was $10,712 uh, uh, now. <laughs> uh, but, but, of course, Congress is addressing that. Uh, energy prices, dollar fifteen a gallon when he uh, in in two thousand for home heating oil. Oh, I'm sorry, home heating oil. That's right. <laughs> now it's more than twice that. Yes. Good thing we've got global warming. And uh, gasoline, of course, uh, you know, a dollar thirty one now two thirty eight. Uh, Exxon profits in two thousand seven point nine million. Uh, in two thousand six thirty six point one million. Billion, billion, my friend. Billion, billion, billion. Thank you. I'm glad you guys are here. 
Me too. Because this would be so misleading. We have to make all these corrections. But, you know, the, the important thing to keep in mind in this sort of the overall argument about the economy is whatever indicators the president can come up with to say that, at, you know, on a macro scale, the economy is going in the right direction. Life is getting more and more expensive and less and less affordable for people in the middle class. And you talk about, I mean, education, average cost of a year at a public four-year college in 2000 was a little under $10,000. Now it's a little under $13,000. There are 8 million more Americans without health insurance. The average monthly worker contribution for family coverage has almost doubled. Yeah. Okay. And then he went into this health care plan. Let's see if we can find uh, – uh, let's first go to a couple of other things. Uh, this – we set the – we've, we've addressed this before. Uh, go to deficit. We set a goal of cutting the deficit in half by 2009 and met that goal three years ahead of schedule. Okay. Now this is this was based on them projecting a a deficit that was much higher than each year. In other words, they they overproject the deficit, right? They overproject the deficit in 2004. Right. And they said it would be 521 uh, billion and it wasn't. So they didn't really have that. So what is it now? Is it uh it's in the two hundred and I think seventy seven maybe two hundred and forty seven. Two hundred and forty seven, sorry. Two hundred and forty seven. So uh he says it's halved, but it isn't half what it was. It was halved the, the over projection they projected. And also, by the way, right. It doesn't include social security, the social security surplus. And the reason that's important is we spend that money. It comes it, it adds to the national debt because we spend it and therefore don't have it anymore. And so it should be considered part of this year's deficit. Right. Well, no, or in other words, what happens is the Social Security Trust Fund has uh, over $100 billion in in uh, uh, surplus, right? Mm-hmm. And we use that to buy bonds. And if, But that means that, uh, that we don't have that. That's where our surplus is, is in government bonds. But it, what it really means, and that's where the Social Security uh, surplus is, but it really means the deficit is that plus whatever the fiscal deficit is, what the unified deficit is. The point is is that the surplus in Social Security keeps growing, but remember we weren't supposed to touch that. That's what Clinton did. Remember that? Mm-hmm. Don't touch that surplus. Save Social Security. deficit in half by 2009 and met that goal three years ahead of schedule. Now let us take the next step. In the coming weeks, I will submit a budget that eliminates the federal deficit within the next five years. First of all, he never, ever, 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 ever goes back and tells you 
that he inherited, inherited a huge budget surplus, $236 billion in 2000 and a $296 billion deficit in 2006. He's, you know what he reminds me of? My mother used to do this, and a lot of, a lot of women who, you know, depended on their, the, the generosity of their husbands to go shopping, middle class families, you know, where your mom, uh, my mom had a job, but she had a part time job. And because she, you know, she wanted to be home to yell at us when we got home from school. <laughs> so we would want to go to school because being home sucked. So, you know, that's apparently the logic I was raised with. You, you ever hear a woman explain to her husband, I, I mean, I, I, I have never done this, but uh, it's worth a shot. If you're a woman, try this. And you probably know what I'm going to say. Will you buy a dress? The dress is $50. Or a pair of jeans, $50 pair of jeans. So you tell your husband, but they were $100. These are $100 pair of jeans. I got them for $50. I saved you 50 bucks. I got them for half. A, I saved you today. $50. That's what I did. That's what Bush is selling you. He's he's like that woman that says, well, you know, it's a $500 bag. Yeah, but it was $1,000. I saved you $500 by buying this very expensive $500 designer purse. I saved you $500. That is his war on logic, okay? That is his freaking war on logic. This man has pissed away $236 billion surplus, extra, outside the budget, outside the spending. And now he's running into a almost $300 billion deficit in the fiscal year of 2006. And let me tell you something. The overriding, overarching thing. You want to know what's going on in Congress? You want to know what's where the Democrats are and what they're doing and what's occupying like uh, so much of their time? They don't have a budget for this year. The Republicans left the 109th Congress without passing a budget. They just did sort of an emergency, uh, you know, to carry you through and keep the doors open. But there's no budget. And they have to craft a budget and try very hard to start balancing it because this man, through his tax cuts and wasteful spending, remember the war isn't even a factor here because the war is not on budget. The war is extra. The war is outside the budget. So when the president tells you he's cut the deficit in half, of course, he's not talking about the war spending. He's only talking about the budget. The budget's not complete. This government is now open and running on a, on a hope and a wing and a prayer. Okay. And it's now fallen to the Democrats to fix the budget. And so their first budget, which they wanted to, you know, they wanted to, to figure out a way to do health care. They wanted a way to do fun, no child left behind. They wanted so much stuff in the budget, and they can't get there because the budget from last year hasn't been paid. It's just a freaking mess in D.C.
Next, intimate tales of America's first underground vice president. The action-packed diary of the man who's just a heartbeat away from history. Dick Cheney. Confidential. 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 Maybe the happiest part of my week was sitting on the dais in the House of Representatives as my constituent in chief delivered his State of the Union address. Though this speech was not the one my office crafted for the president. For example, it did not invite the Democrat Congress to bite the executive branch's crank. When that draft got to the Oval Office, apparently, scareder heads prevailed. But I did have about 55 minutes sitting up there next to Grandma Pelosi, where I could just chew my medicated gum and stare out at the half of the house chamber that wasn't filled with defeatocrats and almost be able to pretend my entire town wasn't being overrun with the kind of folks who'd rather talk to an Iranian than kill one. The rest of the week, though, wasn't nearly so relaxing. For one thing, Lane had decided that the secure undisclosed heating system needed some repairs. Apparently, somebody had forgotten to tell our walls and floors about so-called global warming. So, well, maybe CBs filled our little subterranean home with more noise than a New York restaurant at dinner time. I was burning some shoe leather, putting out a spate of brush fires that had been kicked up by our otherwise enormously successful Iraq account. First, our friend Senator McCain had decided that the only way to support our little war project was to attack its most unrepentant author, a fellow by the name of yours truly. So, having used my President of the Senate ID card to access his private office, I was deep into a warrantless search of his password-protected computer files when, without so much as a pardon me, Mr. Straight Talk himself walked straight in. Wednesday, 10.17 a.m. Uh, Mr. Vice President, always a pleasure to see you, although it's a... Uh... It's more of a pleasure when it's uh, less of a surprise. Well, Senator, I thought it was only fair, since you claim that the President has been badly served by me, <laughs> that I come over and share some of that bad service with you. Well, interesting donor file you've got here. Lots of folks I might not have understood to be fans of, quote, straight talk, unquote. Well, Dick, you know this game as well as I do. Maybe better. Maybe better. Maybe. Not even maybe. Whatever. You know that if I'm going to continue to support this war project and not be roadkill before the first primary, I have to I have to open up some running room between myself and your shop. You're a big boy. You shouldn't take it personally. At least not personally enough to be snooping around my donor file. John, my friend, listen. Nobody has more admiration for you not having had other priorities during the Vietnam War than I do. Well... But let's just take the premise of your statement for a moment. The president listened too much to me, you said. I, di I did say that, yes. Well, exactly who should he be listening more to? Our female secretary of state who's shuttling around the Middle East desperately trying to find a sympathetic ear among potentates who think she should be home cranking out kids through a hole in her burqa? Our new secretary of defense whose primary virtue is his willingness to protect 43's dad through an artful rearrangement of certain facts? <laughs> Steve Hadley, 
who's so green that when he goes on television, he still tries to answer the question he's been asked. Maybe you should make room in your regimen of medications for a small dose of political realism. You're so radioactive right about now, I wouldn't be surprised if the Iranians were trying to weaponize you. John, in case you haven't noticed, I'm all the president's got right now. All the rest of the brain power in this operation is out monetizing its expertise. Five, Wolfowitz, Pearl, even Rumsfeld. Everybody in this shop who knew how to dream big, they're all gone. If the constituent chief isn't listening to me, he's listening to himself. Nobody wants that. Dick, I, I know you think I don't talk straight anymore, but my friend, this talk couldn't be straighter if I quit politics. You're not the big man in this town anymore. Ross Perot was right. You can hear a giant sucking sound. It's your power going down the drain of political reality. Hmm. Interesting diagnosis. Maybe you'd want to share it with your secret group of high-level donors. Except... Hmm. Too bad the database they live in has just been securely deleted. You, you you didn't plenty of time to reconstitute it. Unless they've decided to speed up the fundraising calendar this particular cycle. <sighs> Thanks for the lesson in political realism. Oh, seriously, Dick, don't fool around with... Sounds to me like somebody didn't back up his data. Enjoy your running room. Within the half hour, I was on the other side of town, subjecting myself to a television interview. Oh, they're always unpleasant. For one thing, I have to ditch the medicated gum. For another, as part of Operation Restore Credibility, I was well out of my comfort zone. I wasn't doing the interview with my friends at Fox News or Meet the Press. Instead, I was subjecting myself to a grilling by Wolf Blitzer at CNN. Fortunately, he had the grill set to low heat. All the better reason to spatter some grease his way. Wednesday, 12.17 p.m. Mr. Vice President, thanks for this interview. Seen in this country and around the world. You're in the Situation Room. And we're clear. Now, thanks for real, Mr. Vice President. Wolf, when I told you the question about my daughter was out of line, <laughs> I hope you didn't think I was being hard on you. Oh, I'm, I'm a big boy. Because, in fact, I was taking it way too easy on your ratings-challenged ass. As a matter of provable fact, every single question you asked me was out of line. Well, sir, it's, it's not out of line to question the Iraq strategy in light of the... Yes, it is. As a matter of fact, I... <laughs> I hope that wasn't one of your very valuable lights I just tripped over. Well, I think that uh, Time Warner can afford to replace one light, Mr. Vice President. It's not like in the Ted Turner days when... Yeah, I suppose you're right. Will Wolf, I... Uh, I'm sure they can afford to replace the camera, too. Uh, yes, sir. I think the viewers will appreciate the fact that you let me engage you just a little bit on the history of the war, given the polls that show that... Wolf... The only poll I'm interested in is the one who sent more than a thousand of his troops to help us in Iraq. The president. If he can understand the stakes, uh, I would expect you to if I didn't know better. Well, and, and as for your daughter... Let's put it this way, Wolf. Mm -hmm. 
you may know what one of my daughters is, but I know where your kid lives. Sir, you, you, you know that nobody is a bigger ad. And one other thing, Wolf, Mar- the situation room I'm going back to mm-hmm. isn't a set. One thing our friend Mr. Blitzer can count on. Next time I have a hunting accident, he's not going to get the exclusive interview on it. End of Partial Diary for the end of January 2007. Sincerely yours, Dick Cheney. Confidential. Confidential. was fantastic last night. I don't even know if you can call that a rebuttal to the State of the Did Bush even give a speech last night? I, I, I cannot even remember if I witnessed his speech. I remember turning on the television. I remember an hour and ten minutes going by, and then Jim Webb came on, and in eight minutes, in eight minutes, he managed to decimate... Well, I got to say, it wasn't that hard. And he even started off his speech by saying, look, there's no point in me refuting anything George Bush says, basically saying to the American public, which they already knew, was that his speech was completely irrelevant. And George Bush really basically spent an hour and ten minutes or however long it was, essentially arguing, yes, I am irrelevant there's really no reason for you to watch this. Uh, the most interesting part of the program, uh, according to Fox News, was the fact that they turned the microphones uh, up uh, as he walked into the Senate chamber. This is one of, the, one of the, the things he had to say at the beginning of his speech. This is number three. It wouldn't be possible in this short amount of time to actually rebut the president's message, nor would it be useful. Let me simply say that we in the Democratic Party hope that this administration is serious about improving education and health care for all Americans and addressing such domestic priorities as restoring the vitality of the great city of New Orleans. George Bush said nothing about New Orleans last night. Now, I don't know if Jim Webb, I know he had planned to, uh, to uh, he obviously wrote a speech earlier in the day. I don't know if Jim Webb included this in his speech, just to point out that George Bush, under his administration, allowed this city to essentially be destroyed and has done nothing to rebuild it. 
I don't know if Webb left it in his speech to point that fact out, or he simply assumed that it's impossible for the President of the United States to ignore the fate of New Orleans. Either way, it's completely, completely absurd that George Bush uh, said nothing about that. Uh, He talks about his family's service. Apparently his father was uh, in the Air Force. Jim Webb, of course, was in the Navy and Marines. He was actually the Secretary of the Navy under Ronald Reagan. And, uh, of course, his son is serving in Iraq as a Marine. And this is here he explains, and this is very important, folks. He explains the responsibility, and we hear so much from these right-wingers. Well, the... Anybody who's serving over in Iraq, they signed up for this. They volunteered for it. This is what they were asking for. You cannot uh, actually make an argument that we owe anything to them, that the civilian leadership owes anything to them. Well, here is uh, Jim Webb putting that right-wing talking point to bed. This is number two. Like so many other Americans today and throughout our history, we served and have served not for political reasons, but because we love our country. On the political issues, those matters of war and peace, and in some cases life and death, we trusted the judgment of our national leaders. We hoped that they would be right, that they would measure with accuracy the value of our lives against the enormity of the national interest that might call upon us to go into harm's way. We owed them our loyalty as Americans, and we gave it. But they owed us sound judgment, clear thinking, concern for our welfare, a guarantee that the threat to our country was equal to the price we might be called upon to pay in defending it. Two very important things he said there. We expected them to measure the value of our lives versus the national interest. And the sacrifice we were willing to make versus the threat to this nation. That is the fundamental failure of the Bush administration. say hello to him and I thanked him and I congratulated him and I said so glad you're here kind of thing but I didn't really have a chance to talk to him and then uh, the speech came and you know here's the difference between Jim Webb okay Jim Webb last night quoted Teddy Roosevelt on improper corporate influence he quoted Dwight D. Eisenhower on ending the Korean War and the President of the United States quoted Osama Bin Laden and Zarqawi I swear to God, whatever happened to the kind of, why not go to Lincoln and go, he suspended habeas corpus, 
You know, I mean, whatever. Quote an American, great. Quote Lincoln. Quote Martin Luther King Jr. Quote the freaking Bible for all I can. Don't. We have a president who quotes terrorists. So he can terrorize you. Don't forget, they're lurking out there. And they say they want to destroy everything you stand for. They hate your freedom. He, we have a president of the United States who stands there at a State of the Union speech and quotes Zarkarwi and Osama bin Laden. And then you have a Democratic response where he quotes Republicans. You know, I mean, and here's a little side about uh, Jim Webb. Jim Webb is going to be that weird senator that everybody talks about. Jim Webb was given a speech to read by the Democratic leadership for the response. And Jim Webb tore it up, threw it away, and wrote his own. And what you saw last night was Jim Webb doing what we pray senators will finally do. Find your own opinion. Don't listen to the leadership. Somebody hands you words that are not your own, you tear them up. You write your own. He's also a very well-regarded novelist, so I think he thought, you know, uh, I got a sense of the narrative. I got a sense of the human drama. And my son is there. I'm not reading these stupid words. And he read his own speech last night. The part of you that's drifting over me. Good evening. I'm Senator Jim Webb from Virginia, where this year we will celebrate the 400th anniversary of the settlement of Jamestown, an event that marked the first step in the long journey that has made us the greatest and most prosperous nation on earth. It wouldn't be possible in this short amount of time to actually rebut the president's message, nor would it be useful. Let me simply say that we in the Democratic Party hope that this administration is serious about improving education and health care for all Americans, and addressing such domestic priorities as restoring the vitality of the great city of New Orleans. Further, this is the seventh time the President has mentioned energy independence in a State of the Union message, but for the first time, this exchange is taking place in a Congress led by the Democratic Party. We are looking for affirmative solutions that will strengthen our nation by freeing us from our dependence on foreign oil and spurring a wave of entrepreneurial growth in the form of alternate energy programs. We look forward to working with the President and his party to bring about these changes. There are two areas where our respective parties have largely stood in contradiction, and I want to take a few minutes to address them tonight. The first relates to how we see the health of our economy, how we measure it, and how we ensure that its benefits are properly shared among all Americans. The second regards our foreign policy, 
how we might bring the war in Iraq to a proper conclusion that will also allow us to continue to fight the war against international terrorism and to address other strategic concerns that our country faces around the world. When one looks at the health of our economy, it's almost as if we're living in two different countries. Some say that things have never been better. The stock market is at an all-time high, and so are corporate profits. But these benefits are not being fairly shared. When I graduated from college, the average corporate CEO made 20 times what the average worker did. Today, it's nearly 400 times. In other words, it takes the average worker more than a year to make the money that his or her boss makes in one day. Wages and salaries for our workers are at all-time lows as a percentage of national wealth, even though the productivity of American workers is the highest in the world. Medical costs have skyrocketed. College tuition rates are off the charts. Our manufacturing base is being dismantled and sent overseas. Good American jobs are being sent along with them. In short, the middle class of this country, our historic backbone, and our best hope for a strong society in the future is losing its place at the table. Our workers know this through painful experience. Our white-collar professionals are beginning to understand it as their jobs start disappearing also. And they expect, rightly, that in this age of globalization, their government has a duty to insist that their concerns be dealt with fairly in the international marketplace. In the early days of our republic, President Andrew Jackson established an important principle of American-style democracy, that we should measure the health of our society not at its apex, but at its base, not with the numbers that come out of Wall Street, but with the living conditions that exist on Main Street. We must recapture that spirit today. Under the leadership of the new Democratic Congress, we're on our way to doing so. The House just passed a minimum wage increase, the first in 10 years, and the Senate will soon follow. We've introduced a broad legislative package designed to regain the trust of the American people. We've established a tone of cooperation and consensus that extends beyond party lines. We're working to get the right things done for the right people and for the right reasons. With respect to foreign policy, this country has patiently endured a mismanaged war for nearly four years. Many, including myself, warned even before the war began that it was unnecessary, that it would take our energy and attention away from the larger war against terrorism, and that invading and occupying Iraq would leave us strategically vulnerable in the most violent and turbulent corner of the world. I want to share with all of you a picture that I have carried with me for more than 50 years. This is my father when he was a young Air Force captain flying cargo planes during the Berlin airlift. He sent us the picture from Germany as we waited for him back here at home. When I was a small boy, I used to take the picture to bed with me every night because for more than three years, my father was deployed, unable to live with us full time, serving overseas or in bases where there was no family housing. I still keep it to remind me of the sacrifices that my mother and others had to make over and over again as my father gladly served our country. I was proud to follow in his footsteps, serving as a Marine in Vietnam. My brother did as well, serving as a Marine helicopter pilot. My son has joined the tradition, now serving as an infantry Marine in Iraq. Like so many other Americans today and throughout our history, we served and have served not for political reasons, but because we love our country. On the political issues, those matters of war and peace 
and in some cases life and death, we trusted the judgment of our national leaders. We hoped that they would be right, that they would measure with accuracy the value of our lives against the enormity of the national interest that might call upon us to go into harm's way. We owed them our loyalty as Americans, and we gave it. But they owed us sound judgment, clear thinking, concern for our welfare, a guarantee that the threat to our country was equal to the price we might be called upon to pay in defending it. The President took us into this war recklessly. He disregarded warnings from the National Security Advisor during the first Gulf War, the Chief of Staff of the Army, two former commanding generals of Central Command, whose jurisdiction includes Iraq, the Director of Operations on the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and many, many others with great integrity and long experience in national security affairs. We are now, as a nation, held hostage to the predictable and predicted disarray that has followed. The worst costs to our nation have been staggering financially, the damage to our reputation around the world, the lost opportunities to defeat the forces of international terrorism, and especially the precious blood of our citizens who step forward to serve. The majority of the nation no longer supports this war, the way this war is being fought, nor does the majority of our military, nor does the majority of Congress. We need a new direction. Not one step back from the war against international terrorism, not a precipitous withdrawal that ignores the possibility of further chaos, but an immediate shift towards strong, regionally-based diplomacy, a policy that takes our soldiers off the streets of Iraq cities, and a formula that will, in short order, allow our combat forces to leave Iraq. On both of these vital issues, our economy and our national security, it falls upon those of us in elected office to take action. Regarding the economic imbalance in our country, I'm reminded of the situation President Theodore Roosevelt faced in the early days of the 20th century. America was then, as now, drifting apart along class lines. The so-called robber barons were unapologetically raking in a huge percentage of the national wealth. The dispossessed workers at the bottom were threatening revolt. Roosevelt spoke strongly against these divisions. He told his fellow Republicans that they must set themselves, quote, as resolutely against improper corporate influence on the one hand as against demagogy and mob rule on the other. And he did something about it. As I look at Iraq, I recall the words of former general and soon-to-be president Dwight Eisenhower during the dark days of the Korean War, which had fallen to a bloody stalemate. When comes the end, asked the general, who had commanded our forces in Europe during World War II. And as soon as he became president, he brought the Korean War to an end. These presidents took the right kind of action for the benefit of the American people and for the health of our relations around the world. Tonight, we're calling on this president to take similar action in both areas. If he does, we will join him. If he does not, we will be showing him the way.
hand on the seemingly trivial fact that West Yorkshire in England has a new chief police constable. Upon his appointment, Sir Norman Bettison made one of the strangest comments of the year. The threat of terrorism, he says, is lurking out there like Jaws 2. Sir Norman did not exactly mind the richest ore for his analogy of warning. A critic once said of that flopping sequel to the classic film, you're going to need a better screenplay. But this obscure British police official has reminded us that terrorism is still being sold to the public in that country and in this, as if it were a thrilling horror movie and we were the naughty teenagers about to be its victims. And it underscores the fact that President Bush took this tack exactly a week ago tonight in his terror-related passage in the State of the Union, a passage that was almost lost amid all the talk about Iraq and health care and bipartisanship and the fellow who saved the stranger from an oncoming subway train in New York City. But a passage, ludicrous and deceitful, frightening in its hollow conviction, frightening in that the president who spoke it tried for Jaws but got Jaws too. I am indebted to David Swanson, press secretary for Dennis Kucinich's 2004 presidential campaign, who has blogged about the dubious 96 words in Mr. Bush's address this year, and who has concluded that of the four counter-terror claims the president made, he went 0 for 4. We cannot know the full extent of the attacks that we and our allies have prevented, Mr. Bush noted. But here is some of what we do know. We stopped an al-Qaeda plot to fly a hijacked airplane into the tallest building on the West Coast. This would, of course, sir, be the purported plot to knock down the 73-story building in Los Angeles, the one once known as the Library Tower, the one you personally revealed so breathlessly a year ago next month. It was embarrassing enough that you mistakenly referred to this structure as the Liberty Tower, but within hours it was also revealed that authorities in Los Angeles had had no idea you were going to make any of the details, whether serious or fanciful, public. Who terrorized Southern California that day, Mr. Bush? A year ago next month, the L.A. Times quoted a source identified only by the labyrinthine description, a U.S. official familiar with the operational aspects of the war on terrorism, who insisted that the purported library tower plot was one of many al-Qaeda operations that had not gotten very far past the conceptual stage. The former staff director of counterterrorism for the National Security Council, now NBC and MSNBC counterterrorism analyst Roger Cressy, puts it all a little more bluntly. In our conversation, he classified the library tower story into a category he called the what-ifs, as in the old Saturday Night Live sketches that tested the range of comic absurdity. What if Superman had worked for the Nazis? What if Spartacus had a piper cub during the battle against the Romans in 70 B.C.? More ominously, the L.A. Times source who debunked the Library Tower plot story said that those who could correctly measure the flimsiness of the scheme, quote, feared political retaliation for providing a different characterization of the plan than that of the president. But, Mr. Bush, you are the decider, and you decided that the library story should be scored as one for you, and you continued with a second dubious claim of counter-terror success. We broke up a Southeast Asian terror cell grooming operatives for attacks inside the United States, you said. Well, sir, you've apparently stumped the intelligence community completely with this one. In his article, Mr. Swanson suggests that in the last week there has been no reporting even hinting at what exactly you were talking about. He hypothesizes that either you were claiming credit for a ring broken up in 1995, or that this was just the library tower story, quote, by another name. Another CIA source suggests to NBC News that since the Southeast Asian cell dreamed of a series of attacks on the same day, you declared the library tower one threat thwarted and all their other ideas a second threat thwarted. 
Our colleague Mr. Cressy sums it up. This Southeast Asian cell was indeed the tale of the library tower simply repeated. Repeated, Mr. Bush, in consecutive sentences in the State of the Union, in your constitutionally mandated status report on the condition and safety of our nation. You showed us the same baby twice and claimed it was twins. And then you said, that was two for you. Your third claim, sir, read thusly, we uncovered an Al-Qaeda cell developing anthrax to be used in attacks against America. Again, the professionals in counterintelligence were startled to hear about this one. Last fall, two Washington Post articles cited sources in the FBI and other governmental agencies who said that hopes by foreign terrorists to use anthrax in this country were fanciful at best and farcical at worst. And every effort to link the 2001 anthrax attacks, the mailings in this country, to foreign sources has also struck out. The entire investigation is barely still alive at this point. Mr. Cressy goes a little further. Anything that might even resemble an Al-Qaeda cell developing anthrax, he says, was in the, quote, dreaming stages. Mr. Cressy used as a parallel those pathetic arrests outside Miami last year in which a few men wound up getting charged as terrorists because they could not tell the difference between an Al-Qaeda operative and an FBI informant. Their, quote, ringleader, unquote, seemed to be much more interested in getting his terrorist masters to buy him a new car than in actually terrorizing anybody. That's three for you, Mr. Bush. And just last August, you concluded, British authorities uncovered a plot to blow up passenger planes bound for America over the Atlantic Ocean. In a series of dramatic raids then, 24 men were arrested. Turned out, sir, a few of them actually had gone on the internets to check out some flight schedules. Turned out, sir, only a few of them actually had the passports needed to even get on the planes. The plot to which President Bush referred was a plot without bombs. It was a plot without any indication that the essence of the operation, the in-flight mixing of the volatile chemicals carried on board in sports drink bottles, was even doable by amateurs or professional chemists. It was a plot even without sufficient probable cause. One-third of the 24 people arrested that day, exactly 90 days before the American midterm elections, have since been released by the British. The British had been watching those men for a year. Before the week was out, their first statement that the plot was ready to go in days had been rendered inoperative. British officials told NBC News the lack of passports and plans told us that they had wanted to keep the suspects under surveillance for at least another week. Even an American official confirmed to NBC's investigative unit that there was disagreement over the timing. The British then went further. Sources inside their government told the English newspaper The Guardian that the raids had occurred only because the Pakistanis had arrested a man named Rashid Raouf. That Raouf had only been arrested by Pakistan because we had threatened to do it for them, that the British had acted only because our government was willing, to quote that newspaper, The Guardian again, to ride roughshod over the plans of British intelligence. Oh, and by the way, Mr. Bush, an anti-terrorism court in Pakistan reduced the charges against Mr. Raouf to possession of bomb-making materials and being there without the proper documents. Still, sir, evidently that's close enough. Score four for you. Your totally black and white conclusions in the State of the Union were based on one gray area and on three pallets on which the experts can't even see smudge, let alone gray. It would all be laughable, Mr. Bush, were you not the President of the United States. It would all be political hyperbole, Mr. Bush, if you had not, on this kind of intelligence, taken us to war, now sought to escalate that war, and are threatening new war in Iran and maybe elsewhere. What you gave us a week ago tonight, sir, was not intelligence. 
but rather a walkthrough of how speculation and innuendo, guesswork and paranoia, daydreaming and fear-mongering combine in your mind and the minds of those in your government into proof of your daring do and your success against the terrorists, the ones who didn't have anthrax, the ones who didn't have plane tickets or passports, the ones who didn't have any clue, let alone any plots. But they go now into our history books as the four terror schemes you've interrupted since 9-11. They go into the collective consciousness as firm evidence of your diligence, of the necessity, of your ham-handed treatment of our liberties, of the unavoidability of the 3,075 Americans dead in Iraq. Congratulations, sir. You are the hero of Jaws 2. You have kept the Piper Cub out of the hands of Spartacus. Good night and good luck. So today, as I promised, I'll tell the story of my my trip to my first ever anti-war rally in Washington, D.C., but uh, I've told this story once before, just to a friend, and upon that telling, it, it kind of occurred to me that I'm not really sure it's that interesting. I mean, it, it was interesting to me. I, it was interesting to live it, um, but I'm not sure it's uh, really of universal interest, I guess. But I'm really just saying that to lower your expectations so that maybe it'll seem better in the end. So after, of course, getting lost, as you know, I, I did make it to Washington um, I was planning on, on meeting up, uh, a listener had contacted me, and, um, and so we had plans all, all set up. I arrived, and, uh, and really it was, um, it was really pretty amazing. I, I, I've been to the mall in Washington once before, but I think I was about 12 years old and was probably complaining about my feet hurting and wanting to, you know, go back to the hotel or something like that. And so this time, like, I really appreciated kind of the grandeur of, of the whole place. And so for a while, I you know, I was there by myself for a while before I was able to, to meet up. And so I just kind of stood off to the side by myself, took some pictures, had a good time, listened to the speakers... Um, a few who I heard, um, I heard, uh, representative, uh, John Conyers, Maxine Waters, and Jesse Jackson all spoke while I was there, um, among many others who, uh, whose names I just didn't recognize. And so it was really exciting. Like it, it felt like I, uh, had been sucked into the screen while watching C-SPAN and it, it kind of... You know, those things always seem so far away and distant that it was really interesting to actually be there and see thousands of people show up for, for an event like that. Uh, but it was very mellow. You know, I think that's why it doesn't seem like an exciting story to me. Because nothing, like, really exciting happened. Um, no uh, effigies were burned. Um... 
you know, that no uh, fights broke out. Uh, nobody, not even a single person got sprayed with a fire hose. So, really, I mean, these damn liberals, you know, they're just a bunch of peace-loving, uh, I don't know, non-violent, I don't know, lamos. But, you know, so am I. So, I fit right in, but it just didn't make for an exciting uh, time. Although, I mean, the, the speakers were exciting. There were a couple of bands, and the the crowd definitely got riled up. They just didn't go, like, storm the National Archives and, like, smash windows or anything, which I was disappointed in. Um, when the march got underway, uh, after a while, at this point I had met up with the listener. Um, Hi, Kim. How's it going? It's good meeting you. Um, after meeting up with him, we started the march, and um, kind of right off the bat, um, just as we got going, we as we turned like one of the first couple of corners, I realized something was happening that was it seems so perfectly metaphorical for a bunch of liberals to get all together in a big group and try to march together because of course what do you think happened about 10% of them got lost straight off the course couldn't figure out where they were going you know headed headed off in a different direction found a break in the fence met back up I mean honestly it was kind of comical and um, I just thought of what else could I have possibly expected to happen you get a bunch of liberal thinkers all in one place and you think you can actually keep them all moving in the same direction at the same time it's it's inconceivable I just never thought that I'd actually witness the idea of uh, organizing liberals and Democrats being like herding cats. I just never thought I'd see that in with such perfect clarity. Um, but lo and behold, there it was, of course. Um, I, I guess w one of the highlights of the march, we did, of course, march by uh, the group of anti-protest protesters. And the one sign that I got the biggest kick out of was the dummy that they had hung by a noose with the sign across the front that said Jane Fonda bitch and I simply just turned to my friend and said what you see that one you don't think those guys hold a grudge or anything do you no no they're they're definitely it's very topical very uh, very useful to this uh, day and age and the conversation we're having about this war. I guess I found out later that I think Jane Fonda was actually there, but I mean, do I even have to say, get the fuck over it? Sorry, but uh, I, you know, half the people in the march had no clue what that reference was. They're like, what are you fat and you didn't like her workout videos? I mean, People just aren't plugged into that reference, and I think it was probably um, 
wasted time at the arts and crafts table making that uh, effigy to, to hang by the tree. Um, so that was, that was pretty much it. March went around the capital. It was exciting. You know, I, you know, I, I actually got to see all these landmarks, you know, walked by the, um, I, I guess the uh, Library of Congress and the Supreme Court and, uh, you know, the backside of the Capitol and, um, you know, so it was really kind of exciting, like, you know, I, sorry to say, like, I'm kind of sounding like more of a tourist than a activist <laughs> because I was just kind of marveling at, like, this cool place I was in and this cool thing was going on, but, uh, but it, it was a good time and as I mentioned yesterday as my big teaser, not yesterday, in the last show, however long ago that was, there was a celebrity sighting. And for me, this was the most exciting part of the day. And you'll probably be terribly disappointed in this story. But just as the march was ending, I was, I was talking again my friend who, uh, who, you know, we were walking along and he said, you know, I, I've been meaning to ask you, t like, I want to ask you these questions about your show. And so he did. And I answered. And I, so I was talking, which is actually odd for me. I'm not a big talker. I don't talk a lot. And, um, throughout the march, I hadn't talked much, but at this particular moment, I was talking and I was telling about the show and all of a sudden, a guy walks up from my, like, from behind me, a little bit to my left, and says, hey, excuse me, are you Jay? And I said, well, yeah, I am. And he said, from best of the left. And I said, yeah. And he said, hey. And he introduced himself, and he described, you know, he's written in before, and he was one of the, the few but extremely generous people uh, out there who offered me a place to stay when they heard that I was coming to the East Coast. It just so happened he lives in New York, so, you know, that didn't work out. I would have loved to, to have met him earlier and taken him up on his offer, but just wasn't where I was heading. So uh, I'll take this minute to thank all of you who, who wrote in with offers uh, like that. It was, it was really amazing. But it turns out this guy just happened to be walking walking by, and he said, "I don't know, maybe he's a stalker or something." And he knew me all along, and he'd been been following me all day. But he said he recognized me by my voice. Not, I mean, he didn't even say the picture because I've got a picture on the website, and so you know he could he could have done that. But I was so baffled by that because I I kind of like as quickly as I could, ran the math to try to figure out exactly how horrific the chances were of that happening based on the extremely small number of people who listen to the show compared to the even smaller number of people who listen to the show and were at the march and the huge number of people who were there I mean, the, the chances against it were astronomical. But I was very excited. And it was my first uh, sighting. 
um, I mean, I, I don't think I've ever spotted a, a celebrity myself. I certainly didn't expect to be spotted. But uh, the rest of the day was actually spent hanging out with him and his friends, and we went to lunch and had a great time and rode the metro. And uh, so, again, I'll say hi to all of you guys as well. Great meeting you. And um, that's really in the story. The, the rest of the story is I go home and get terribly lost a couple more times. But, uh, but that was my first... Uh, first rally, first trip to D.C., and I don't think it could have been better. I mean, I really enjoyed it, and uh, I have zero regrets. I, of course, highly recommend any uh, any rallies, any big events coming up that you're interested in. Definitely make the effort to go, because it, it's, it's a pretty amazing experience to, to be in a place with so many like-minded people who, who don't just think the same way you do, but actually really give a shit and really get out there to try to make a difference or just try to be involved or just, you know, every one person has a hard time thinking that, that they can really do anything. But just sometimes just being a, a part of a headcount is is enough to to really um, to really either make a difference or just feel really good about yourself and 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 feel like a, a productive member of an active democracy uh, as it stands, you know, dwindling as it may be. So thanks for listening, everybody. If you care to get a hold of me, I, I love hearing from all of you. So do that uh, either directly at hippiesympathizer at gmail.com or you can just go to bestoftheleftpodcast.com. There's a link to email me there and also a link directly to the community forum where you can not only talk uh, with me or about the show or just with other listeners about whatever the hell you want to talk about. Um, it's, it's a great community. All the people there fantastic so check that out if you're interested and uh, we'll be back with you real soon have a good one everybody